This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of glenohumeral arthritis from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Glenohumeral arthritis is a degenerative joint disease of the shoulder characterized by damage to the articular surfaces of the humeral head and or the glenoid. Diagnosis is made radiographically with a true AP or a Grashy view as well as axillary lateral radiographs. Treatment is observation, NSAIDs, and corticosteroids for minimally symptomatic patients. Shoulder arthroplasty is indicated for progressive symptoms with severe degenerative disease. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence of glenohumeral arthritis, it increases with age and is more likely in patients over 60 years of age. In terms of demographics, glenohumeral arthritis is more common in women. In terms of risk factors, note that 56% of patients who had primary anterior dislocation have arthrosis at 25 years follow-up. Moving on to etiology, causes of glenohumeral arthritis include primary osteoarthritis and secondary arthritis, which can be secondary to post-traumatic reasons, arthritis of dislocation, inflammatory-slash-crystalline arthritis, osteonecrosis, a neuropathic etiology like Charcot arthropathy, and rotator cuff arthropathy. In terms of pathophysiology of glenohumeral arthritis, this can be secondary to primary osteoarthritis, post-traumatic arthritis, cuff tear arthropathy, dislocation arthropathy, post-capsulorophy arthropathy, inflammatory-slash-crystalline arthritis, osteonecrosis-slash-avascular necrosis, and chondrolysis. So starting with primary osteoarthritis, it's important to talk about the articular cartilage, the humeral head, the glenoid, and the rotator cuff. So starting with articular cartilage, in primary osteoarthritis, know that there is irreversible progressive loss of articular cartilage with hypertrophic reaction of the subchondral bone, and there is no known cause. In terms of the humeral head, in the setting of primary osteoarthritis, there is thinning slash absence of cartilage, flattening, osteophytes, and subchondral cyst formation, as well as possible posterior humeral subluxation. Moving on to the glenoid, in the setting of primary osteoarthritis, you may see posterior wear, which is classified by the Walsh glenoid classification, and you may also see subchondral cyst formation in the glenoid, in the setting of primary osteoarthritis. Finally, in terms of the rotator cuff in the setting of primary osteoarthritis, know that rotator cuff tears have an incidence of 5 to 10%, and therefore it's important to rule out in the setting of primary osteoarthritis. Moving on to post-traumatic arthritis, know that articular surface incongruities following trauma healing can lead to joint deterioration. This commonly occurs in patients with humeral fractures and chronic dislocations. Moving on to cuff tear arthropathy, know that torn rotator cuff tendons leads to humeral head migration and subsequent abrasive contact between the humeral head and acromion, which leads to articular wear. Moving on to dislocation arthropathy, know that repeated dislocation can cause erosion of the joint cartilage, and there is a higher incidence with increased age, posterior dislocation, and know that it's not associated with the number of dislocations. Now let's talk about post-capsulorophy arthropathy. So know that excessive tightening of the soft tissues in stabilization surgeries to treat recurrent dislocation forces the humeral head in one direction and causes the head to wear unevenly on the glenoid. Moving on to inflammatory slash crystalline arthritis, let's talk about rheumatoid arthritis, calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease or CPPD, and gout. So starting with rheumatoid arthritis, this is a systemic autoimmune disease that causes synovial inflammation and degradation of the shoulder joint. It can involve all structures of the shoulder, including the soft tissue, 
This affects 90% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and is characterized by central glenoid wear and medialization of the humeral head. Finally, moving on to calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease, or CPPD. This involves accumulation of calcium pyrophosphate crystals within the joint space, causing synovial inflammatory response and cartilage-slash-bone damage, and is sometimes referred to as pseudogout. Finally, gout is the accumulation of sodium urate crystals within the joint due to hyperuricemia, causing inflammatory attacks within the joint and cartilage-slash-bone damage. Moving on to osteonecrosis-slash-avascular necrosis, Know that bone cell death is caused by interruption of the blood supply to the humeral head, which leads to subconscial bone collapse and morphological-slash-arthritic changes. Causes of osteonecrosis-slash-avascular necrosis can be traumatic in nature or atraumatic in nature. Traumatic causes can include proximal humerus fractures, chronic glenohumeral dislocations, repetitive injury, and rotator cuff repair. So in terms of proximal humerus fractures, there's a 35% incidence of osteonecrosis-slash-avascular necrosis in three-part fractures and a 90% incidence in four-part fractures. Atraumatic causes of osteonecrosis-slash-avascular necrosis include steroids, ethanol, hemoglobinopathies, and metabolic causes, for example, Gaucher's disease. Moving on to chondrolysis, this occurs following shoulder arthroscopy. However, the exact pathophysiology is unknown, but it's associated with radiofrequency energy, continuous post-op anesthetic infusion, bioabsorbable suture anchors, and contrast. Note that chondrolysis leads to the dissolution of articular cartilage, and keep in mind that chondrolysis will have less osteophytes than in osteoarthritis. Associated conditions with glenohumeral arthritis include rotator cuff tears, which has a 5-10% to incidence with osteoarthritis, and a 25-50% to incidence with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, let's go over the glenohumeral joint and glenoid osteology. So the glenohumeral joint is comprised of the humeral head and the glenoid fossa of the scapula. Stability is maintained by static restraints and dynamic restraints. The static restraints include the glenohumeral ligaments and the glenoid labrum. Dynamic restraints include the rotator cuff muscles, the rotator interval, and the biceps. In terms of glenoid osteology, the glenoid is 3 degrees retroverted and the humerus is 20 to 30 degrees retroverted. Now, let's talk about the classification of glenohumeral arthritis, and the one to know is the Walsh classification of glenoid wear, and this is divided into four types, type A, type B, type C, and type D. Type A corresponds to concentric wear, no subluxation of the humeral head, and it's well-centered. Type A is further subdivided into subtypes A1 and A2. A1 corresponds to no or minor central erosion, and A2 corresponds to deeper central erosion, where a line connects the anterior-slash-posterior glenoid rims and transects the humeral head. Type B corresponds to a biconcave glenoid, asymmetric glenoid wear, and the head is subluxated posteriorly. This is further subdivided into four subtypes. B0 corresponds to pre-osteoarthritic posterior subluxation of the humeral head. B1 corresponds to posterior joint narrowing with no posterior bone loss, osteophytes, and subchondral sclerosis. Subtype B2 corresponds to posterior rim erosion and a retroverted glenoid. Finally, subtype B3 corresponds to monoconcave, posterior wear, humeral head subluxation of at least greater than 70%, or retroversion of greater than 15%. Type C is further subdivided into subtype C1 and subtype C2. C1 corresponds to glenoid retroversion of greater than 25 degrees regardless of erosion. Subtype C2 corresponds to biconcave, posterior bone loss, and posterior translation of the humeral head. 
Finally, type D corresponds to glenoid antiversion or anterior humeral head subluxation, where humeral head subluxation will be less than 40%. Now let's talk about the presentation of glenohumeral arthritis. Symptoms include shoulder pain, loss of range of motion, and difficulty sleeping. Shoulder pain will be worse with activities involving shoulder motion, and often there is no pain at rest. In terms of loss of range of motion, this will be especially evident with external rotation due to anterior capsule contraction. Moving on to the physical exam, there will be functional limitations at the glenohumeral joint, including decreased external rotation, forward flexion, and internal rotation. However, this can be variable, and more active patients tend to have a better range of motion. Physical exam may also reveal crepitus, catching slash squeaking with articulation, and in terms of motor exam, know that a careful evaluation of the rotator cuff muscles should be performed. Relevant functional outcome scores include the ASES shoulder score, the constant score, and the Oxford shoulder score. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a true anteroposterior or AP of the glenohumeral joint, as well as AP and axillary lateral views. Findings often diagnose the etiology. For example, in the setting of primary osteoarthritis, you may see joint space narrowing, subchondral sclerosis and subchondral cysts, osteophytes circumferentially at the humeral head, otherwise known as a quote-unquote goldspeard, posterior glenoid wear, and a fixed posterior humeral head subluxation due to a tight anterior capsule. Findings of post-traumatic arthritis include articular surface incongruities due to healed fractures and or hardware from previous surgeries. Findings with arthritis of dislocation include large osteophytes and or hardware from previous surgery. Moving on to findings of inflammatory slash crystalline arthritis, findings of rheumatoid arthritis can include joint space narrowing, marginal erosions of the humeral head, reduction in acromiohumeral distance, few osteophytes, central glenoid wear and medialization of the humeral head, and osteopenia. Findings of CPPD include chondrocalcinosis, which are calcific deposits in the articular slash fibrocartilage. Findings of gout are usually unremarkable. However, repeat attacks may show osteopenia slash erosions. As far as findings of osteonecrosis slash avascular necrosis, you will see normal radiographs early in the disease. However, later on, you may see resorption of the middle of the humeral head, a crescent sign or lucency indicating subchondral collapse, as well as flattening slash collapse in more advanced stages. Finally, findings of rotator cuff tear arthropathy include osteopenia, superior migration of the humeral head, narrowing of the acromiohumeral interval, acromial erosions, superior glenoid bone loss, and quote-unquote acetabularization of the coracoacromial arch. Moving on to computer tomography, or CT, indications include evaluating the glenoid morphology and rotator cuff pathology for preoperative planning. Keep in mind that CT may underestimate full-thickness rotator cuff tears and fatty infiltration slash muscle atrophy compared to MRI. Keep in mind, however, that CT does allow for preoperative templating. Finally, moving on to magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, this is indicated to evaluate rotator cuff pathology for preoperative planning, however, is less accurate than CT in distinguishing between glenoid types. Now, let's talk about the treatment of glenohumeral arthritis, which can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes physical therapy, or NSAIDs, which is the first line of treatment, and modalities include NSAIDs to reduce pain and inflammation, and physical therapy to improve range of motion with capsular stretching. Intraarticular injections are indicated as a second line of treatment. In terms of modalities, corticosteroid injections can reduce pain slash inflammation. Hyaluronic acid injections function for joint lubrication. However, there is limited evidence for the use of these. And finally, biologics like platelet-rich plasma or stem cell therapy also has limited evidence.
Finally, DMARDs, or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, are indicated in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis. Operative options for glenohumeral arthritis include total shoulder arthroplasty, hemiarthroplasty, reverse shoulder arthroplasty, arthroscopic debridement, a comprehensive arthroscopic management procedure, otherwise known as a CAM procedure, and finally, arthrodesis. So starting with total shoulder arthroplasty, this is indicated when there is an intact rotator cuff, the patient is unresponsive to non-operative treatment, there is glenoid chondral wear, and or posterior humeral head subluxation. Contraindications include lack of deltoid or rotator cuff function, active infection, and charcoal arthropathy. The technique involves a concave glenoid or cup and a convex humerus or ball to reconstruct the joint. As far as outcomes of total shoulder arthroplasty, there is good pain relief and reliable range of motion. The 10-year survival is 92 to 95%. The most common complications include glenoid slash humeral component loosening, infection, fracture, nerve injury, and rotator cuff tear. Hemiarthroplasty is indicated for a younger patient, rheumatoid arthritic patients with irreparable rotator cuff tear slash insufficient bone stock, and osteonecrosis without glenoid involvement. The technique involves humeral head replacement plus or minus biologic resurfacing. The ream and run technique involves humeral head prosthesis and glenoid reaming to provide a stabilizing concavity and maximizing the glenohumeral contact area for load transfer. This is indicated in young patients with an intact rotator cuff and no inflammatory arthropathy. As far as outcomes of hemiarthroplasty, there is an earlier failure rate, which is why it's not typically recommended, and there's also poor pain and functional outcomes. Moving on to reverse shoulder arthroplasty, this is indicated for an irreparable slash large rotator cuff tear. It's also indicated for osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis with significant glenoid pathology. Other indications include age, rotator cuff arthropathy, failed arthroplasty, and a complex fracture. The technique involves a convex glenoid or a ball and a concave humerus or a cup to reconstruct the joint. As far as outcomes, there is good pain relief and improved shoulder function with reverse shoulder arthroplasty. The 10-year survival is approximately 90-95%. to Common complications include scapular notching, infection, dislocation slash instability, and nerve injuries. Keep in mind there are higher reported complication rates than total shoulder arthroplasty. Moving on to arthroscopic debridement, indications include mild to moderate osteoarthritis without structural alteration. Other indications include mechanical symptoms due to loose bodies or small lesions of the humeral head due to avascular necrosis and in the setting of synovial chondromatosis. As far as outcomes, arthroscopic debridement is a temporizing treatment which can improve range of motion and pain. However, it is less successful in those with more rapid degenerative changes, and keep in mind that you may see better results in patients who also had subacromial procedures. A comprehensive arthroscopic management procedure is indicated for younger patients. The technique involves a combination of arthroscopic glenohumeral debridement, chondroplasty, synovectomy, loose body removal, humeral osteoplasty with excision of the goat's beard osteophyte, capsular releases, subacromial and subcoracoid decompressions, axillary nerve decompression, and biceps tenodesis. Finally, moving on to arthrodesis, indications include paralysis, recurrent infection, severe soft tissue deficiency, poor deltoid function, brachial plexus palsy, and persistent symptomatic instability with failed repair. Outcomes include moderate complications and improved slash acceptable long-term function. To learn more about the surgical techniques for total shoulder arthroplasty, hemiarthroplasty, and reverse ball prosthesis, be sure to listen to the podcast episodes about total shoulder arthroplasty, hemiarthroplasty, and reverse shoulder arthroplasty. 
Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. An 80-year-old right-hand dominant male presents to clinic with one month of left shoulder pain. He has crepitance as well as a positive drop arm test on exam. Radiographs are significant for moderate glenohumeral arthritis and MRI demonstrates Goutelier stage 4 fatty infiltration of the rotator cuff. Which of the following is not an appropriate option for treatment of this condition? And the choices are 1. NSAIDs and or cortisone injection. 2. Arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. 3. Shoulder hemiarthroplasty. 4. Activity modification and or physical therapy. And 5. Reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. The correct answer to this question is 2. Arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. So this patient has moderate glenohumeral arthritis with an irreparable rotator cuff tear. Rotator cuff tears with fatty infiltration are considered to be irreparable, with arthroscopic repair not indicated as an appropriate option for treatment. The optimal management of patients with irreparable rotator cuff tears with glenohumeral osteoarthritis is not well defined in the literature. Initial management should involve conservative measures, including injection of corticosteroids, physical therapy, activity modification, and NSAIDs with consideration of operative intervention in those that fail a trial of non-operative management. Laudicina et al. review the management of irreparable rotator cuff tears in the setting of glenohumeral osteoarthritis. NSAIDs, corticosteroid injection, activity modification, and physical therapy are mainstays of non-operative treatment. Failure of conservative management may lead to operative intervention. The authors endorse that hemiarthroplasty is currently the procedure of choice for patients with moderate to severe glenohumeral osteoarthritis and irreparable cuff tears. Izquierdo et al. provide a clinical practice guideline of the treatment of glenohumeral osteoarthritis based on a systematic review. Nine of the 16 addressed recommendations were inconclusive, illustrating that the management of glenohumeral osteoarthritis remains controversial. The single moderate-rated recommendation was for the use of total shoulder arthroplasty rather than hemiarthroplasty. The two recommendations reached by consensus include use of perioperative mechanical and or chemical DVT prophylaxis for shoulder arthroplasty patients and that total shoulder arthroplasty should be avoided in patients with glenohumeral osteoarthritis with irreparable rotator cuff tear. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answers 1, NSAIDs and or cortisone injection, answer 3, shoulder hemiarthroplasty, and answer 4, activity modification and or physical therapy are all incorrect as NSAIDs, corticosteroid injections, physical therapy, and activity modification are all part of the conservative initial management of glenohumeral arthritis with irreparable rotator cuff tears. Finally, answer 5, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is incorrect, as shoulder hemiarthroplasty and reverse total shoulder arthroplasty may be considered for patients who have failed a trial of non-operative management. Moving on to the next question. A 61-year-old laborer presents for total shoulder arthroplasty for primary osteoarthritis. What is his chance of having a concomitant full-thickness supraspinatus tear? And the choices are 1, less than 10%, 2, 10 to 20%, 3, 20 to 30%, 4, 30 to 40%, and 5, greater than 40%. The correct answer to this question is 1, less than 10%. So full-thickness supraspinatus tears have been historically rare in patients with primary shoulder osteoarthritis, with most studies showing a rate of less than 10%. 
while numerous imaging studies in asymptomatic individuals have demonstrated a high prevalence of rotator cuff tears, that is 30 to 55%, in individuals over the age of 60. This has not been the case with those patients presenting with primary shoulder osteoarthritis. This excludes patients with rotator cuff tear arthropathy, who by definition have a cuff tear and do not have primary osteoarthritis. Norris and Iannotti noted 9% of their osteoarthritic patients presenting for arthroplasty had full-thickness supraspinatus tears. Edwards et al. cited 42 out of 514, or 8% of their osteoarthritic patients, had full-thickness supraspinatus tear. Please note that these numbers refer to full-thickness tears of the supraspinatus in patients with primary osteoarthritis, who are symptomatic as they are presenting for arthroplasty. And moving on to the final question, in comparison to patients with osteoarthritis, patients with inflammatory arthritis undergoing shoulder arthroplasty are more likely to have, and the choices are 1. Large inferior humeral osteophyte, 2. Medialization of the glenohumeral joint line, 3. Posterior humeral head subluxation, 4. Sclerotic glenoid, and 5. Posterior glenoid wear. The correct answer to this question is 2. Medialization of the glenohumeral joint line. So inflammatory arthritis, for example, juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis of the shoulder, characteristically demonstrate concentric glenoid erosion with medialization of the glenohumeral joint. As a result of the often severe glenoid erosion, glenoid resurfacing is not always feasible in these shoulders, and some authors recommend hemiarthroplasty. The articles by Thomas et al. and Jolies et al. report good results of arthroplasty in patients with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Eccentric wear, for example, posterior glenoid wear and posterior humeral head subluxation, may be seen in osteoarthritis and in postcapsulography arthritis. Subchondral sclerosis is seen in osteoarthritis with periarticular osteopenia seen in inflammatory arthritis. A large inferior humeral osteophyte is commonly seen in advanced shoulder osteoarthritis. That's all for this review about glenohumeral arthritis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.